analyst. I think we're good. Yes, so I'm speaking to Dr. Kadir Mullins. This is such a pleasure for me. What he is is a radiation oncologist. And what that individual does, the person, among other things, but for today's discussion, delivers something called radiotherapy, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. And I'm hoping to shed some light on what he does and his wonderful career. And I just want to say he's currently working in the United States, but originally started at the University of the West Indies. And in addition, he's involved, which I have to plug this place. It's called Prime Medical. It's one of my real favorite radiological suites. And in addition, they offer other services. And hopefully, as I understand it, Automolis is going to be involved with what he does for a living. And I, I really can't emphasize this enough that this is a wonderful business filled with individuals that care and good pricing at a central location and the location is Premier Plaza. So this is a long boring plug, but I just have to say this, Kadir, you look pleased with, you know, what you guys did down there and um, and play. I know you guys will keep it up. And so I, I, I got, uh, as I say, I had Dr. Francis on, you know, Francis, and he was telling me that eventually your services will come in to that that is that uh, organization or that that location, I should say. Well, not that location, but definitely in short order, uh, we'll be offering radiotherapy services. Excellent. And a full suite cancer center. Excellent, excellent. So you say you don't want to let too much out of the bag. You say when I talk to you, you can comment more on that. So I'm very pleased to learn that. So I, I as you know, I've been bugging you a little while to do this, and and after all. Mullins very kindly, this is late at night, one, two, he's on vacation, so I'm taking away from his time. So I, I better get going with his brief and hopefully simple and hopefully illuminating questions here. I wanted to just run something by you, and this is a bit self -shunny. I have this patient, Kadir, who has what she seems to have. I'm not sure the exact primary, but... It, it seems to me it's, it could be laryngeal CA. Um, they were, it, it took a little while. The patient was a little fastidious, but it took a little while for the guys to appreciate what was going on. And we're at a stage now where they said radiotherapy and chemotherapy. And then perhaps if she's fit enough, they'll do something. And tobacco. When... And there's so many questions here, but the markup, I just have to know, when do you typically get involved in, and as it pertains to radiotherapy, I'm just talking about cancers today, and I know there are other areas it will be used, but I'm just really, I'm interested in this. So when you typically get a call, okay, like for example, with my patient, when, when, when do they involve you, and how do you get involved? Okay, so... We get involved basically um, depending on the type of demographic that we're taking care of, where we practice, and um, you know, referral patterns, that kind of thing. I'm fortunate to be practicing in a first world country. So I get involved pretty early. The patient you're describing sounds as if you know they're maybe pretty more advanced, but usually we get diagnosed. Um, we get I get involved pretty early in the process. So that patient may have had symptoms, seen their primary physician, the 
primary physician would have sent them, I guess, within a few days of seeing them to an ear, nose, and throat specialist. They would do endoscopy, um, laryngoscopy. You know, probably the presenting complaint would have been like hoarseness for more than two weeks. Um, they would have scoped them. They would have biopsied them. And when they've discovered that it's malignant or cancerous, usually that ENT surgeon would do staging investigations inclusive of potentially an MRI of the head and neck, inclusive of a PET-CT scan for staging, depending on what type of laryngeal cancer it is, if it's non-glottic, meaning not from the vocal cords. And then I would get the person or the patient sent to me probably about a week after seeing that ear, nose, and throat specialist. Uh, I rarely ever have to order any investigations because they're already done for me. And that's the point in time I would see this person. But that's obviously in a first world setting. Right, because it, in addition to, in this particular patient, which I just want to, I just talk a little bit about, because I think we can illustrate a few things. She was thinking about the surgery, wasn't too hot about it, because basically she never wanted the ability not to speak. And of course, we're at that stage now, and I think she has a trick in, if I'm not mistaken, at this present time. So what I was wondering is, in... What, from your standpoint, would be offered if that patient came to the uh, uh, the correct time period? And what type of radiotherapy? And I suppose we need to talk about what that is exactly, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit. But what type of radiotherapy and how to deliver it and those sorts of um, options? Well... So as, as she presents right now, um, she may have, she may be at a stage wherein surgery is actually the best um, option for her, depending on a number of factors, depending on whether or not the tumor has infiltrated adjacent sites of the larynx, if it's going through the thyroid cartilage, if it's fixed, that kind of thing. You know, there's some evidence to show that in these people, surgery plus post-operative radiation, plus or minus chemoradiation therapy may give better clinical outcomes. Um, if she presented earlier um, to me, it would depend on which subsite of her larynx we're talking about, you know. Um, there are multiple subsites, and depending on which one, um, the treatment options would basically be uh, potential what we call laryngeal sparing um, services where we would try to preserve her larynx using chemotherapy and radiation therapy together, saving surgery for salvage if those don't work. If it's a vocal cord cancer, you know, up to 90 to 95% of those have very good local control over multiple years. Um, if we go up into the supraglottic larynx or above the vocal cords, um, the control rate, you know, it's a little less, but still not bad. And, um, you know, if it's still early, in some instances, surgery may still be utilized. Um, however, chemotherapy and radiation therapy can be a strategy that's employed to try and preserve that person's larynx. And for the most part, we're pretty successful in very early stage disease at doing that. 
So the, the type of radiotherapy would be the, what they call the external beam, correct? So where we that, that is where we focus the beam of radiation on the area and basically ablate or destroy cancer. And since we're talking about it, I have to say this. At Kingston Public Hospital, before I believe, just around the time before you left, uh, we were still using the older technology. And as I understand it, I'm not a hospital well, but I think there are a few of the more modern machines to do this. Now, to do so, the, the question to you: Doing it the old way to rewind the the, the clock here a little bit, you do. The value in doing the, the the older method, some people call it the cobalt machine, whatever terminology. Was there a rule for that on, in larynx or these small, because that seems to be a small area to be irradiating? Well, okay, so let's back up. There's actually some history about that cobalt machine at Kingston Public Hospital. Um, rumor has it that it was donated by um, the or not donated, it was sourced from the Kingston General Hospital in at Queen's University, Canada. That's a yes. rumor there. Yes. Um, that machine was probably in vogue in the 70s. Yes. You know, um, so woefully outdated. However, Dr. Wan, in a situation where you have nothing else, yes. you know, we have to be grateful for whatever God has provided for us yes, yes. and what we try to, you know, what we try to make use of. And it did serve its purpose. It had multiple limitations. However, you know, they did utilize it to help treat many patients successfully with, can with cancer. Um, but that being said, yes, the technology has moved leaps and bounds ahead of this now. We utilize machines called linear accelerators and what these do is they, they accelerate electrons to the speed of light or close to the speed of light. And as we know, electrons are negatively charged. These electrons are subsequently used to bombard uh, heavy metal. Most of the time, it's tungsten. And as those electrons pass through that, that positively um that dense metal with all the positive charge, the electrons are deflected by the attraction with the positive charge. That deflection emits the radiation that we utilize to treat. And you know there are lots of technicalities in terms of the direction the, 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 the radiation beam or the photon is emitted, but just imagine it as an, a negative electron passing a positive nucleus deflecting and then some energy is released. That energy is the radiation that we utilize to treat. That energy um, that we use to treat in clinical linear accelerators can be um, magnitudes greater than a regular CAT scan or X-ray. So to put things into perspective, uh, one fraction of radiation, which could typically run you anywhere from 20 to 40 treatments, in what we call standard fractionation. One fraction or one day treatment is the equivalent of about 200 CAT scans in terms of energy. So it's wow. very powerful. Radiation is painless. You can't see it, smell it, touch it, feel it. We could be getting radiation right now, would have no clue. 
um, while the radiation is coming out of the head of the linear accelerator and it comes that way based on the design of the machine, uh, tungsten blocks are utilized in the head of the machine to shape the radiation um, so that it enters into the body in a particular shape. We can also manipulate the energy and the degrees of freedom or the direction of the, the direction which the you know photon beam enters the body. We utilize uh when we are able to modify the intensity of the radiation and the shape, we call that intensity modulated radiation therapy. Uh, they call that IMRT. That's the short word for that. Uh, if we're able to modify or take advantage of or change the intensity as well as the shape, also doing this while the machine is rotating, we call this volumetric modulated arc therapy or VMAT. These are the two typical uh, types of techniques that we utilize nowadays to treat um, many sites of the body for, you know, with radiation. Traditionally, or more, more from a Jamaican setting, Jamaican uh, machines or people are more familiar with something called 3D, three-dimensional conformal radiotherapy where this is simply uh, the radiation beam is shaped to match a structure and we may use multiple areas or, or multiple positions of the radiation machine to cover that structure. However, there's no real modulation, so to speak, of the radiation intensity or you know degrees of freedom. Um, so we use more intensity modulated radiation therapy here in the US, some more things. Some sites, however, we can still adequately treat with the older three-dimensional conformal radiation therapy. Um, so it sounds like the newer therapy is a little better. You know, since everyone hears, hears us talking about radiation, you know, some people might wonder, what is this? You know, so it, it produces this radiation. You know, how does this work? Uh, I like to think of radiation as us being a, as radiation oncologists as being able to utilize God, our God-given ability to heal. And what happens is when the radiation is exposed to a particular body part um, that's cancerous and has normal tissue surrounding it, what happens is the we minimize the radiation exposure area to the smallest area necessary to kill all the cancer, including the microscopic disease that you can't see from a test or, or, or determining on a physical exam. In this field of radiation that's been exposed, what happens is on a genetic level, the energy that is produced from the machine passes through this area and it utilizes different kinds of reactions, including the production of free radicals, direct damage, and other such mechanisms to damage DNA in that exposed area. Cancer DNA is very disorganized. Um, it is... Let me silence this. It's very disorganized. Um, 
it is it doesn't have any sort of fidelity as it regards to its repair whereas our regular normal dna has very well built repair mechanisms which start literally almost immediately after being exposed to radiation therapy so what happens is we give a dose that's small enough to kill a small amount of cancer cells every day while minimizing the damage to normal cells such that they repair mechanisms which i think are miraculous and evidence of god um repair the damage that we caused and what we do is we split the dose up over a period of time you know most times it's around a month or a little more such that we're able to kill a small amount every day for the full month until all the cancer should be dead while the body repairs itself during that time. So we basically are just minimizing the damage area and taking advantage of our God-given ability to heal. And that's how radiation works. So in, in the present era, working in with the equipment you have there in the States, would you say the, the side effects now, depending uh, if I come to you early enough and it's with something that's treatable, is, is would you put it even as minimal or would you still say there are still, there can be significant in this day and age? Well, the side effects are dependent on the body location that we treat and the nerve supply to those areas. Um, once we treat the larynx or the oral cavity, I'm, I'm just bringing up larynx because of, you know, mm. that example that you, you initially started with. It can become very painful, um, regardless of which technique you use. Yes, using the more modern techniques is... Uh, gives us the ability to minimize the side effects when compared to older techniques. But the, some of the side effects can still be significant. And that's why we're, you know, in the setting that I practice, we have a very good palliative care team that we work in conjunction with to help to ameliorate some of these symptoms that patients experience, try to preempt them and be proactive. And we usually get people through pretty comfortably. Uh, you know, we approach it in a multidisciplinary setting. Um, so it depends on the location. Lots of areas that we treat, patients have very minimal side effects. You know, I, I'd mentioned things like prostate cancer, for instance. You know, usually people come in, you know, guys are of the age where they come in, they get their treatment and they go play golf. Uh, oh, wonderful. Yes, breast cancer is another Um Another such area if we're treating the breast only, um, where the side effect profile is pretty very well tolerable. Some patients have nothing much more than a bit of fatigue and a sunburn on the skin that usually heals about a week to a week and a half after they're done. So the in in contrasting that now, even with our linear accelerators, as you understand it, what we have here locally, just for the local audience, they if I had, you mentioned two other big ones, of course, breast, prostate, and colon is another big one locally that people would receive some motor therapy depending. 
the 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 side effects again depending uh, i'll give you another example so a patient man was offered they would call a new adjuvant they wanted to dose on the three or three and then do some work after and she was hesitating and i said well if they think this is the best thing to do i think that we have to do it that that would be my thought on it they are their professionals you know she's coming back for me she's familiar with me to give, get some advice. And I was wonderful, but I said, no, we have to follow these professionals. They have the... So in a case like that, in, in terms of breast, with the, the not as modern as what you are working with, the, the, the side effects associated with that would be likewise minimal? So they're about the same. They're, they're the same because, you know, as, as, as I had alluded to earlier, there are certain body sites that whether you use a fancy plan or a traditional plan, you know, the plans basically come out the same and breast is one of those sites, you know? So the technology wouldn't make a difference there. Uh, where, where it would make a big difference is for instance, prostate. You know, the prostate is more or less a midline structure. Traditional techniques would be putting all the dose of radiation um, almost like a four-field box, meaning from the front, from the back, both sides, going through both hips, going through the rectum, going through the bladder with the full dose of radiation. Yeah. So the full dose of radiation that the prostate um, would get will basically occupy a space that is much bigger than the prostate itself. Um, with our more... Uh, highly advanced technologies they're more conformal meaning they wrap the dose as closely as possible to the shape of the organ that we're trying to cheat to treat you know that's what we call you know conformality um we're able to 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 pump those very high doses in around the tumor within a few millimeters while you know differentially sparing the normal tissues around them so that's where they they um potentially the side effects and toxicity would be a lot, lot more, you know, a lot better utilizing those technologies. Head and neck cancer is one as well, where there's a big difference between, you know, the radiation dose delivered with the new conformal intensity modulated techniques versus the traditional three-dimensional techniques. So, because uh, as opposed to what it said, is in, in this day and age, you know, my father's urologist is telling me that he offers, uh, he puts that if you if you come at a certain, for lack of a better word, stage, you, he puts the radiotherapy to them as an option for, for I said, what, for treatment? I said, no, this is for cure. So you can basically be cured and it will work and work well if you can. Access the, well, the, I suppose it, it's depending on what your pocket can take, but definitely it works and it works very well. It's like uh, in terms of the surgery, they're offering robotic surgery, as you know. So they said the whole of that field has changed from when he was training. It's very interesting. So that 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 is a, a new development that people need to know that you know these things really work and they work well. So uh, that's something you do from day to day uh, as well, Kadir. You you work in, in that area as well, or you that's not which which particular area? Prostate. If you if you do a lot of prostate where you are. So so yes, we do. So my specialty training is in prostate cancer treatment. 
as well as radio surgery. So I'm a radio surgeon as well. So I treat tumors of this brain, spinal cord, um, or any kind of high high precision techniques where you deliver a very high dose of radiation that's very close to an organ. That was my specialty uh, in fellowship training. And I also did what we call prostate SBRT, stereotactic body radiotherapy, um, in a very high volume center. So I trained and did a ton of that. So prostate is my specialty when it comes to radiation therapy, yes. However, I where I practice, it's a community setting. So I basically treat everything, <laughs> you know? Um, in more academic settings, you know, people will subspecialize and just treat just breast or, you know, I knew I wanted to go back to Jamaica at some point in time. So I didn't want to be so narrow in my practice. So I, so I, I do a general practice from head to toe. The only, I just don't treat children at this point in time, because that needs a really specialized setting. Uh, uh, could you, uh, this is uh, me just wondering from an academic standpoint, can you expand a little bit about on the, the neurosurgical, those methods that you use? The... Oh, radio surgery? Right, the radio surgery. Okay, so radio surgery basically is delivering a highly ablative dose of radiation, extremely intense. Um, before we said that a typical course of radiation therapy, um, you know, one fraction for one day is about the equivalent of 200 CTs or CT scans. So imagine delivering the same dose that's the equivalent of, uh, I don't know, 8,000 CT scans just in one shot. Wow. Okay, very powerful. But not only that, but utilizing stereotaxy or precision, being being able to, to hit a target within half a millimeter precision. That's what radio surgery is. And what radio surgery allows us to do is in patients who have tumors that um, are either inoperable or very small, um, radio surgery can give close to equivalent rates of ablation or you know destroying the tumor without any surgical intervention whatsoever so we utilize the radiation as a scalpel and that's that's where that's where that um that term radio surgery comes into play so you know radio surgeons you know we work very closely with neurosurgeons um in order to to treat these patients, select the patients. Um, but we basically treat tumors all throughout the skull, from the skull base to the parenchyma, you know, all throughout. We, we, we offer radiation treatment to it. The spine as well, the spinal cord. And also now um, we treat lots of brain metastases. You know, I utilize radiosurgery a lot. You know, I've had I have patients who I've treated their brain for metastases 52 times. Or 52 different spots. Oh. I mean, I know in Jamaica, you know, because we're not there yet, but, you know, they would be told that, you know, we, there's nothing we can do. There are many people that, that I treat as well who have brain metastases as part of their presentation. However, if they're deemed, if I deem them to be what we call oligometastatic, meaning they have a small volume of metastatic sites, 
I um a lot of the time will go after each of those metastatic sites to treat all the cancer I can see and then supplement that with sending them to our medical oncologists or hematology hemo hemo oncologists colleagues to do systemic therapy. So um I utilize this this kind of technique a lot a lot. I treat lots of lung tumors um adrenal metastases you know bone metastases brain metastases we utilize stereotaxis um, which is precision and high dose treatment a lot would you say the results are fair or or above average or good or would, you wouldn't go so far or it, it's it's all dependent well the truth is it's dependent on the selection that you you chose you know so there are things that we look for that will push the odds in our favor. So for instance, people with very good performance status, meaning they're not very sick. Mm -hmm. um, we, we do very robust imaging and use multiple modalities, including MRI, PET scan, where the probability of us detecting um, gross metastasis is very high. So we can properly select the patients who truly have this low volume mets. Now in those patients, yes, the outcome can be good. I mean, it's it's better than being just told you're stage four and it's time to go and die. Yes. You know, I, I have multiple patients who, who are long-term survivors, uh, multiple patients with brain metastases, for instance, that I've treated, um, you know, seven, eight years. Um, I have a very good gentleman, patient of mine. Um, he's had metastatic renal cell cancer for many years. You know, I've treated him multiple times. Uh, he unfortunately passed away earlier this year, but that was after many, many years of me treating his brain metastases, um, things that would pop up. So, yes, we have long-term survivors. It, it seems as if it, it, uh, the team approach is best in what you do. And so I was just wondering if at times... Because, you know, medical colleagues don't seem to be, or some of the colleagues in general, no medical, it's not to say medical as a prefix, but are not that, some people would term what you're doing a little aggressive. Have you ever encountered that kind of pushback? And how do you do that? All kind the of time. <laughs> because I remember you being very passionate and and you know that sounds like a very optimistic view. And, you know, if you have the ability, it seems as if, uh, I think this is shining through in your work here that you really just try your best for your patients. But yeah, so the pushback, that's a common thing? Well, not common because, you know, it's a, the, the, the techniques that we use, you know, we, we try to stick to, you know, national guidelines. The, the one that we typically use is the NCCN. Um, now, once you get into the realm of this oligometastatic or low-volume metastatic mm -hmm. disease, there's not lots of level one evidence, apart from probably brain, brain metastasis, you know, that any of these treatments are tri-tested and proven. I've enrolled multiple patients on different clinical trials studying that. But, you know, as it relates to consensus, there isn't any, like, consensus, so to speak, about what's the number, how much should you stop, how much should you treat, you know? So there's always going to be discussion. Um, but the most important thing, Dr. Wan, is what, what the patient wants. Because I, I 
I, I picture myself as a servant to the patient. And I've always seen myself as a servant to the patient, um, not only from my KPH days, but you know, I've come to realize that the reason God put me in the situation that I am in is because he wants me to serve him through serving these people. And, you know, I, I, I try to respect their wishes. I will not give anybody false hope. I won't, you know. If something is treatable, I'll give them their options. I always do. I won't tell them what to do. I'll give them their options and give them a realistic outlook on what I think will happen with each option. And then they make the decision. You know, many patients have told me, you know what, I'm fine with, with how I am. I've lived a good life. You know, it's not for me to tell them, no, I can still try and treat you or the treatment. It won't cause many side effects. So let's do it. I won't do that. But um, most importantly is the patient, what they want. And then if I'm able to deliver um, specific treatment for their specific scenario, you know, I will I will offer that to them. And we're we're held accountable in my specialty because, you know, we we usually have to defend our treatment decisions at uh, what we call weekly rounds, where all the radiation oncologists that we work together with gather around, and then we have to explain the rationale behind our different treatment decisions and choices. And the policy at my organization is kind of unwritten: is that you know, or or the the, the position I take is if my colleagues are all unanimously against what I am proposing, then I won't do it. Okay. You know? So it, I guess there are some checks and balances in there that will temper temper some of the decisions you make. But for the most part, you know, it's dependent on what the patient wants. Excellent. You know, I have to ask a few others. I know it's we're nearly running out of time here. The well in Jamaica now you can I think you can get the high level because based on what we talked about the linear accelerators are here and I think they have one in Cornell if I'm not mistaken and I think KPH or, or it could be St Joe's. I'm not miss. Uh, I think it's one of those, but there's a public site. So yes, there's a. But unfortunately, due to volume, sometimes you're going to have challenges. Really, the the options, as I understand, there's one center mainly that's still in operation. I'm not aware of another private center. The when you come on stream, hopefully, if and when, you will be added to the mix. Do you, I guess what I'm trying is to ask, there is, a, a, in private, as I understand it, the, the pricing is a bit of a challenge. Based on your experience working abroad, is there any way um, to combat that in terms of the pricing? Because we need to back up a little and say these, all these techniques, require machinery and different from expertise and machinery is quite frankly not cheap it's uh, it costs money and therefore it has to be paid back and it needs maintenance that's a big problem in kph career still by the way 
But I, I think they, they, they understand this concept a bit better. So the, the machines need to be maintained. And and so I must have a roundabout way. Is there any way to reduce the cost of this? Not only in Jamaica, just generally, because it just sounds like a costly. Or what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, and any, any thoughts at all? I, I do. But just to back up, you know, what Jamaica has been able to do, I know it's very expensive. I know it's, you know, high resource thing. But what Jamaica has been able to do in terms of the ROCJ that's there now, yes. um, you know, and, and they have been around for quite some time. It's truly remarkable what they have done yeah. in terms of the patients they have served over all these years. Um, they, they, the new machines were a big were, were a big step, you know, and they did serve to help a significant number of the population. Um, one at St. Joseph, one is in, in Montego Bay. And, you know, we, we mustn't downplay, I'm not saying you did, but, you know, we shouldn't downplay, you know, what the government has done, you know, both administrations to, to trying to, to, to help the plight of the Jamaican people, because this is an exceptionally expensive specialty, Dr. One. Um, these machines are horrendously expensive. And if the if the machine wasn't expensive enough, just running the machine is horrendously expensive. Um, from the electricity to the different specialists that that are needed to operate it, medical physicists, dosimetrists, radiation oncologists, these people are paid extremely well. You know, so they have to be reimbursed extremely well, and you have to do that from the machine. Not only that, the maintenance of the machine is probably one of the biggest expenses. And because of how technologically advanced these machines are, in fact, the, the, only, the only device that's more technologically advanced than these are probably space stations. Wow. You know, these are extremely, extremely um, technologically advanced and finicky machines. So, you know, in the U.S., the price range, the, the price range for a course can of radiation can range from you know thirty thousand US dollars to two hundred thousand US dollars, depending on what you're doing. Yeah. You know, so um, yes, they're very expensive. We can't don't play what the government has done so far. This is where the private sector will come in. Um, there are there are other facilities in Jamaica as we speak. There is one in Saint Anne. Oh, okay. Brand new. Um, however, I'm not sure how far along they are, you know. Um, as it relates to affordability, just because the machine is in Jamaica doesn't make it any less expensive to operate. Mm -hmm. So somebody has to pay the bill. We at Prime um, have figured out a way that we will implement we won't say anything about it yet because yeah. we can't yeah. to to have this radiation accessible to every single person in Jamaica um to make it affordable such that every person in Jamaica working in the market working as a doctor a policeman you know 
selling bag juice or cane on the street, every person should be able to access it and get the same care that anybody here in the U.S. would get. We have a plan for that. Um, I feel that one of the reasons that God put me in the situation that I'm in is so that I could come and spearhead that for my country. You know, the 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 odds of me getting in getting into this kind of training program um, were almost zero. They were almost zero, and we don't have time for it. But the story about my journey here to where I am now all came from a threat from Patrick Borasing at KPH, telling me that if I don't go over to radiation therapy to work. I would not have a job there anymore. That is how that is how I got into radiation therapy. Okay, just heard they were over there. I said, I said, Kino is your friend. He said, "Boy, I'm sending him over to radiotherapy." So I said, "I said, where are you going?" He said, "Well, I don't know yet." <laughs> Never wanted to go, Doctor One. It was, it was. In fact, I was depressed. But just ironically, not to belabor the point, mm-hmm. um, weeks before. I was praying and asking God to give me guidance to direct me in a path where he would want to use me as something that I would love. And there nothing I tried, Dr. One, mm. hit the spot. Neurosurgery, nothing at all. So I was just hanging out in radiology um, when, when he answered my prayers through that threat. But little did I know. So yes, we do have a plan in place to make this affordable to all people, to all our all our fellow Jamaicans. And um, when it happens, I think it will be great, and it will serve to help and also lift a huge burden, financial burden off of the individuals. Um, you know, and make this more, make it more available. And this thing where people are presenting when the tumor is growing out of their heads and all that kind of stuff, hopefully that can stop. That that sounds absolutely wonderful. You know, Kadira, you soon have to go, I know, and then I'm going to wrap up soon, but you open the door on that your journey. And just because a lot of the medics I meet obviously want, I wouldn't say they want to migrate. I think the idea is they want to get advanced training in the first world. And so I, I just, if, if you don't mind, just tell them where you trained and how you got to, you, you've been in, this is the third country now, but how you got to from Jamaica to where you are presently working. So again, um, so I, I graduated from the University of the West Indies. I did internship at KPH, and I must say that this was one of the best times of my life. Yes. But, uh, you know, many people complain about KPH. Um, I, I had fun there. I just, I don't know. It was just the gratitude that people had when you took care of them. There's nothing that compares to that. It, it just doesn't. And I used to leave tired, but with my heart full. Um went on to doing SHO, rotating around. You know, I basically did radiology for quite some time because I, I didn't know what I wanted. Mm. And that's when uh, Patrick Borasing came over and told me that, you know, there's a space over by radio, ra- um, radiation oncology, you know, radiotherapy, as you call mm. it. Um, 
you know, there are lots of opportunities in that. You know, the ministry may pay for you to go abroad. You know, and I say, well, that's very good, Mr. Borsing. Um, but who wants to go over to that dump? <laughs> yes. What do you really? say that 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 era of the hospital? Uh, it, okay. At this time, it's not bad, but you, you know, it was as well kept as it was. And well, there was nothing over there. We used to think that yes. people go over there to die. Yes. So anyway, I, you know, he said, well, find another job. <laughs> so there, there you go. So I, I went over there. And um, I can tell you that I thought I was depressed when I just went over there. I, I really thought this was like one of the worst things that ever happened to me. But then when I started taking care of the patients, the gratitude started chipping in. Um, there is a guy who used to come and preach for them every Thursday or so. And just the camaraderie, how the patients would come, they would bring food for each other. They would, they would minister to each other. It was amazing. And then um, Dr. Greaves, who was the consultant at the time, he was on vacation during that two weeks. He came back. Then he started to open my eyes into what radiation was about and brought me up to ROCG and showed me what it could be. And Dr. Wan, from that time, I said, wow, mm -hmm. this is for me. Because I love physics and I love math and it take, you need all of those. Yes. You're not bogged down to one particular specialty. You have to know everything about the brain. The, like you need yeah. to. Be, I said, wow. <laughs> so working there, got references, you know. So I went to government, said I'm going to send promising people. So I went to them. They said, oh, you're promising. We'll send you. <laughs> Spoke to people at the University of Toronto, organized everything for the government to, to send me. And of course. When we're so, they're supposed to sign, you know, we don't have any money. It's <laughs> like, so, but you guys made me do all this work, mm -hmm. right? So that door closed. So I said to myself, you know what? If this is truly what God wants me to do, he will make a way. Um, I was a permanent resident of Canada at the time, you know? Gotcha. You know, so... You know, I kept going on. I said, you know what? I'll apply through the regular Canadian route. So I counseled with the people there through this thing called CARMS, yeah. Canadian Residency Matching Service or whatever. Yeah. And I asked them, you know, what are my odds of getting into radiation oncology? They basically told me, um, forget about it. You can't get into that specialty. You need certain amount of grades. You need to have all these things. Plus, you have to do medical school somewhere that's recognized. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I went to UWE. I, I, they have no idea how brilliant the people at UWE are. I used to come and watch all of you guys you know, and say, you know what? Wow, <laughs> these guys are the best. <laughs> no, it's the truth. So anyway, you know, long story short, <laughs> um, I, I got in to Queen's University to do radiation oncology. Through that traditional, um, the CARMS, through CARMS? Through CARMS, regular, regular match through CARMS. But I said it was impossible. And I can't even tell you about the miracles that happened for that to happen. Mm -hmm. So then I finished my residency there. Uh, that's Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, yes. Yes. Canada. Yes. Yes. And my house was off Tivoli Avenue, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then... And interestingly enough, my wife got into the same residency program, not radiation oncology, yes, pediatrics. Yes. Yeah. 
at the same school. So if the odds of one was zero, the odds of two, and we're, they, they call us IMGs, you know, international yes, medical yes, students, yes. it should be less than zero. Yes, but, yes. but both of us got into, got into the program there. Um, I then left and went to do my fellowship in CNS spine and genital urinary radiosurgery. Yeah. And after that is when a company here in the U.S. recruited me. Yes, yes. And and that's I've been there ever since. Excellent. That's such a wonderful story. And I said that I tell I often tell people about you. And I said, you know, I was at I remember there was no way to get it in. I said, Well, I don't know. You can you know what I mean? Nothing you need to try. That's that's really what I would tell people. I mean, what do you want? If that's what you want, you have to try. I mean, you can't stop when you haven't started. It makes no sense. You know? I can't remember her name. There's a radiologist at KPH. She she overheard me talking to Dr. Francis saying, Why you know, Kino, they only have one spot available and they have over a thousand people applying for it. And I was complaining and lamenting about, you know, boy, you know, they're not going, I wouldn't get that and whatever. And the lady got up from her chair, came over to me and said, Excuse me, I'm so sorry. I'm not really listening to what you're saying, you know. But you said they had one spot, right? I said, Yes. So she said, then how much spot you need? No one you need. I said, yes. Then go for the one spot and stop complaining. And just walk back over to her chair and sat down. <laughs> oh, gosh. I won't forget uh, that. Oh, Lord. Well, this has been so wonderful. Especially that it did there. I will allow you to go stay on vacation. I thank you so much. I thank you. I'm going to let me again hit the stop.